But if I'm looking at a deal that, as Andrew said, 500 other VCs are looking at, I don't feel like that's a proprietary deal, right? <laughs> you know, a proprietary deal, why that's, let's say you want to buy a house. You say, wow, the house on the corner, I really want to put an offer into it. Would you like to be bidding against 20 other buyers or be in, a, in the kitchen with the owner of the house talking about how, you know, you'd like to consummate it? It's the same concept in venture capital. So the, the deals that we tend to do, we're not really competing against anybody. We've kind of figured out how to buy the house without anybody else either knowing about it or having a viable shot at getting it. That's easier said than done, but it's a discipline that we have. So to your point, uh, founder relationships that the partnership have, uh, sometimes we get referrals from our venture capital friends. Maybe they invested in a prior round and they say, hey, Brian, this, this company looks like it would fit your thesis. We also get deals from our corporate partners. So you've heard us talk about Cisco. We have a relationship with Cisco and Cisco's investment team has brought us great deals over the years um, and uh, universities. We have relationships with universities where um, maybe there's a artificial intelligence lab or a machine learning, you know, curriculum and you've got, you know, postdocs or graduate students or, or undergraduate students that are coming out of university that have been working on some interesting technology product, and they say, wow, we think we can actually commercialize this. And so that's one of the reasons we have a relationship with Professor Romans, and we've got other relationships at other universities. So those are a few of the ways that we you know, manufacture those, those introductions. Welcome our speaker. And this is the first. We've got a venture debt guy. We've got like a Jedi of the law, which is a big part of what we're doing. And this is the first full-blown dark side of the force, purely financial venture capitalist. So I'd like to welcome Brian. Good to see you, bud. Back yeah, so Brian is a founding managing partner of Sway Ventures. And um, he's He's not that far from here. I've been to his place in Laguna Beach. Um, and they're spread out across what? Denver, Stockholm, Valley? San Francisco. In San Francisco. Yeah. yeah. And they're investing out of a third fund and they're setting up some other funds uh, we can get into. But, um, you know, Brian, tell us first a little about your, your path that led you. And we've got people that may end up in venture capital and may end up running startups. What was your path? That got you into VC. Yeah, it uh, was not the uh, predictable path. <laughs> I can say that much. When I was your guys' age, I did not know venture capital existed. I probably didn't know it existed until I was almost 30. I'm really old. Um, so I kind of discovered it um, very circuitously. I started my uh, tech career in college accidentally. Um, I had a horrible job. Uh, as part of putting myself through school and somebody called me and said, hey, I think I can get you an interview at IBM. This is 30 years ago. And at that time, IBM was Google, Facebook, and Apple in one. It was the most prestigious, largest tech company on the planet. So I ended up getting a job there while I was still in school. I was working 30 hours a week uh, at 
IBM while I was going to school. I was a student athlete. I played you know, sports as well, so I was pretty busy. But by the time I graduated, I happened to have a tech resume working for what was then, you know, about the, the biggest tech company in the world. So that gave me shots on the roll to get other offers to work for tech companies. So I ended up working for a Fortune 500 company called Freecom. Uh, and then I went from there to a company you might have heard of called Cisco. Um, and then by the, the end of my time at Cisco, I was watching some of my friends um, that were going into startups. Can I ask what years, what years were you at Cisco? Because Cisco was it, very fitting with our topic of corporate venture capital as well. What years were you? Late Cisco? 90s. Oh, and, nice. And what was happening then is Cisco was buying 20, 30, 40, 50 companies a year, which is breakneck speed. And the, CEO, the then CEO, a great guy called John Chambers, would send out these emails to the entire employee population and say, today we're announcing the position of XYZ tech startup, and here's why it's strategically important for us and why this was the acquisition rationale. And we paid the price of $100 million, $200 million. And over the course of a year or two, the price tags just kept going up and up to where they were in the billions of dollars. That's a little more common today, um, but at that point in time, it was pretty unprecedented. And so I eventually sort of looked at these startups, which I really didn't know much about. And I thought, I think I'd rather have their stock options than my options. Yes, yeah, you're, you're getting paid whatever, but although, although I would wager that your options in Cisco they became the most largest market cap company in the world. They, they did, like but, by, but by the end, end of the 90s, it was already measured in hundreds of billions, which today there's only a couple companies, you know, Apple, Tesla, and others that have kind of eclipsed that level. So even though it was well over 20 years ago, they were already fairly top heavy in terms of market capitalization. But the point is, I was watching these startup acquisitions, and it wasn't purely financial, but it was just like, how are these startups getting hundreds of millions and billions of dollars in value for these acquisitions? And, and I, I came to the conclusion I was on the wrong side of those trades. I didn't want to be working for the big fish. I want to be working for the little fish that the big fish cobbles up, because in the startup world, your equity compensation is generally stock options. And I had friends and their stock option strike price was 10 cents a share, 20 cents a share, 30 cents a share. My strike price was $30 a share, $40 a share. And in the startup, you're, you're gonna get a lot more shares because it's not worth that much relative to a publicly traded company. So lower strike price, higher volume of shares. If you get on the right side of one of those acquisitions, it could be life-changing. So I just figured if I'm gonna, you know, gamble with my career, I'd rather be in startups. You know, it, it, I have to laugh a little bit to sit next to some guy complaining about his stock options at Cisco during the years that that became the most valuable company by market capitalization on the NASDAQ or the NYSE or the Nikkei, you know, in a short period of time. But, you know, your calculus makes sense and your conclusion and it's great. If I had gotten to Cisco in the early 90s, I'd have a different point of view. <laughs> sure. Um, so that's how I, I left the corporate world. 
and went into startups, which by their very nature were venture capital backed startups. And that's where I sort of was introduced to the concept of, you know, VCs, what are, you made the decision, you know, you're buying these companies for like 7 billion, Chromatis Networks was happening, all those kinds mm -hmm. of deals. And then how did you make the move? Yeah, so I, at that time that Chromatis was being acquired and, you know, Cisco bought Serent Communications for yeah. 8.8 billion, which was kind of the peak of it. Um, I got recruited to join an optical networking startup, not too dissimilar from uh, one of the companies that you, you were working for about that time. Um, and I, I just figured, well, Cisco or one of their competitors is probably going to have an opportunity to, you know, purchase a startup like that. Interestingly, three weeks after I got to the startup, pre-revenue, pre-product. But that's often how it was, right? I mean, you don't build a gigabit router or whatever they're doing, DWDM, without some heavy funding. You have to get the funding, but interestingly, three weeks after I got there, Cisco's Corp Dev guys rolled up and put a billion-dollar offer letter on the table to buy a company that had no revenue and didn't even have a completed product which is ludicrous you know, in any normal market. But that's how crazy it was in the late 90s. You hear about the dot-com era and the dot-com crash. It wasn't just dot-com companies, as you and I both know. There were yeah. infrastructure companies that were actually powering the internet. Yeah, level one on the internet. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So uh, unfortunately, Cisco pulled out of that deal after we had assigned term sheet. Um, but it was, a, it was a valuable lesson. And okay, I think I'm on the right track because the big fish is coming after the little fish. And so I spent probably the next 10 years of my career, uh, I, I was a serial entrepreneur, which means you work on a startup until you have some sort of an outcome, good, bad, or indifferent. Then you go to another startup and you, until you have an outcome. So I did that four times. Hmm. And I got pretty lucky that all four of those actually got gobbled up by bigger fish. But by the fourth one, I was pretty sure I didn't want to do a fifth time because, these are, <laughs> as you know, these are very, uh, they're all consuming. I mean, they're just, it's the hardest job in tech is to found a company and bring it from idea to commercialization to exit. And so I thought to myself, I want to be a parallel entrepreneur. Why have the horse blinders on and do one company at a time when I could build 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 at the same time. But I love I love that term parallel entrepreneur, but it, it's a great way of saying it. I like to think of myself as a junior co-founder of every startup that I back, you know, even if I come in a little bit later. But I like the parallel entrepreneur one. It's a very logical progression. I think that many of us went went through. Mm -hmm. a similar story, you know, on my end of saying at this point in my life, I'd rather be in multiple startups at the same time. Mm -hmm. I'll get I'll make less, but I'm more diversified, it's safer, it's a different you know, vibe of being at war 24-7 as opposed to maybe at war for nine hours a day, mm -hmm. you know, by comparison. But we stumbled into something I think is a really interesting topic, and I'd like to give it some attention. I wasn't planning on it, which is going back to Chamber, John Chambers and Cisco. So I actually got $25 million of vendor financing from Lucent Technologies before I raised my first venture capital funding. Mm -hmm. So I got a vendor financing is like getting a credit card that you can only use at Lucent for $25 million. The minute I did that deal, we signed our death warrant with Chambers. So he just said like, I'll do everything in my power to destroy this company. <laughs> like it was like, Jesus, we just couldn't believe 
the aggression coming from Cisco after it felt so good. And I remember seeing an interview with John Chambers on like, I don't know, CNBC or something where they said, Mr. Chambers, how many engineers do you have there in Silicon Valley? And he's like, 9,000. They're like, how do you expect to compete with Bell Labs? He's got like 80,000 engineers. And what he said is very revealing. He said, well, first of all, we are LP investors and like 100 VC funds. And we get to see everything that those guys are investing in. And if we, when they introduce one, if we think we can work with it a bit, we might buy 10% of the company, invest a little bit into it, and then we can buy the company. Now, there's a whole lot of things he wasn't saying that he probably shouldn't say in public that maybe you're experiencing that he might have decided to buy a company for a billion to stop it from going into the hands of somebody else, to stop it from completing a funding round, to then go to Ericsson and then have Ericsson compete with him in the data center. He might have like tried to kill and deep six a company and let's not put it all on him. Like the Corp Tab team, you know, is you know, pretty amazing at what they're doing. Like they had so much revenue coming out of Europe, selling stuff to Telefonica and BT and FT and everybody that they were paying tons of tax to move the money back. They hired a guy out of Apex, Frederick Von Bo, to invest in 54 VCs in one year to see all these deals, to try to buy companies, to have employees in Europe. You know, so it's truly the best one of the best examples I can think of, of a CEO and a board and a company that recognizes that they're in the middle of the tech world and what's their strategy to destroy their competitors and be advanced. And they literally invested in VC funds at scale that would share information with them, that were hooked up with their corp debt M&A teams to reinvent the company every single day. Yeah, I, I do. there are definitely defensive moves where they're trying to squash competitor. But practically speaking, in my time in Cisco, it was a little bit more practical than that because you get the product and the intellectual property that maybe you can commercialize with a global uh, established channel. But the other part of it was engineers, it turns out, um, are very, very valuable in the world of tech. And there are actually, you know, calculations, they change over time. But if you buy a company, they'll actually put a number on the head for if I have 100 engineers and it's, you know, a million dollars a head for the engineer of, of enterprise value, then I pay 100 million for that team. Um, and so I, one of the craziest things I witnessed in that era was uh, an entrepreneur that I knew raided Cisco, took 50 engineers from Cisco, and then started a startup and really hadn't gotten to a product yet, really didn't have revenue yet, turned around and sold that for $4.4 billion. And that's when I realized that engineers are a currency. Yeah, uh, in this industry, and you can't underestimate if you're building a tech startup, the importance of having a strong engineering team. Yeah, when you were telling the story of like free revenue, free product, this level of $1 billion acquisition number, that's a team buy in advance of a product buy. So like, you know, there's a hierarchy of kind of M&A exits in our world, which is if, if you're buying a company for discounted cash flow revenues or they're big in Latin America, different markets. You're literally buying revenue. It might be vertical, horizontal, you know, vertical, horizontal integration plays. But then as you get earlier and earlier, it's important as an entrepreneur and a VC to really understand this stuff of like, how can I de-risk an investment? How can I justify investing at this valuation into a company with it's been at it for years? 
still no meaningful product or revenue. Be like, right now there's comps of cybersecurity engineer. It's going to be a million dollars in engineer. So if it's a twelve million pre on a pre-revenue deal with five of them, I'm willing to go into that. You know, you can start to justify. So I, I call that a team buy. So the first is like a team buy or aqua hire, like acquisition to hire. They call that an aqua hire. Then kind of product buy. And then you start getting into more business that civilians can maybe better understand. You know? Well, so I kind of led the conversation into a dark place talking about people buying companies to destroy them or compete with their competitors. Why don't we switch gears into something that's a little bit better? The, the industry seems to evolve, have evolved where when you and I were getting started, there was just a lot of white men in the room. There's not a lot of diversity. Um, how do you, you know, talk about uh, how Sway Ventures thinks about <clears throat> diversity, inclusion, uh, maybe even how that's impacting your business? You know, yeah. Do you feel compelled to care beyond your own personal beliefs? Or let's get into that. Yeah, it's probably worth talking about the macro trend, which Again, when I had started as being a founder, it was a lot more homogenous, but because the engineering culture in Silicon Valley and other places, they were putting a premium on the skill set. And so we had J1 visas coming over from India, let's say, and then those engineers became naturalized citizens. Those engineers had lots of experience. And then some of those Indian engineers started founding companies. There's a, a great organization called uh, Thai which is the um, Indian entrepreneurship uh, organization. And there's, I don't know what their membership is, but it's thousands. Uh, thousands. Their events are big. Huge. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there were lots of engineers that came from great universities in China and Vietnam, um, you know, just all over the world. So IIT, so the Indian Institute of Technology, there used to be like just a couple of them. And if you meet someone that got into the IIT and graduated, the number of applicants per seat was just like nothing you'd see in an American university. It was like 10,000 to one. It's like you made the basketball team for the country of the United States. Like not just how many kids are in your high school. Yeah, so, so what changed was that over the last 20, 25 years, there's a lot of diversity in founders now. They're, gender diversity, ethnic diversity, uh, country of origin diversity, um, which is great. So I, the deals we look at are not homogenous because everything that comes at us is people from all walks of life with all kinds of um, ethnic backgrounds and you know every single flavor on the gender scale that, that you can think of. So that's great, that's progress. The, the venture capital world was probably slow to adopt or just it became you know a lot of middle-aged white guys and yes i happen to be one of those um but there were just too many of us and so when we launched sway almost a decade ago day one we said like we've got to have diversity and so it was important to us to hire you know female partners um, and we've we've got an immigrant from vietnam we've got an immigrant from the middle east we've got um, to African-Americans, our team isn't huge as, you know, for you guys that haven't seen like what does a venture capital firm look like, we're not big organizations. A lot of VC firms are 10 people, 15 people. 
20 people, um, but a pretty sizable percentage of our team uh, is in fact, you know, demonstrative of both gender and ethnic diversity. To turn that into the portfolio bias, we actually do put a premium on diversity for the founders that we backed, but that's actually not hard because founders that of the companies that we look at, it's a huge spectrum. Um, so we're, we're pretty proud of our heritage of diversity and inclusion, but we're definitely seeing other firms putting a premium on it. So it's changing to the good. And I think, you know, before long, you'll start to see even better. The people that give us money, which are called limited partners. So you've got a venture capital firm that invests in startups. I'm sure uh, Professor Oman has explained that there's investment groups called limited partners that invest in your fund. They're starting to put a real focus on diversity and inclusion, and they're starting to fast track funds that have you know, female um, members in the partnership that are you know in positions of power. They're starting to fast track companies that have a lot of ethnic diversity among the partnership. So that's another forcing function that, that you know motivates everybody to really think about it. I want to get into a little bit of your thoughts on career paths and as these guys are thinking about their jobs when they finish school. But on this topic, I think that um, I've done a lot of international travel and, and speaking at different startup events, and you wouldn't expect it, but like first time I went to Istanbul for Startup Istanbul, 10,000 people, half the startups pitching were women CEOs, and it was from all over the Muslim world. And I was like, geez, this is not what I'm used to seeing in the United States or Europe. And I wasn't expecting it, but that was the case. And even a lot of women GPs, and same thing in Dubai, same thing in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. And you look at the United States, I think the percentage of like African-American women CEOs that get to a Series A as a percentage of Series A backed companies is appalling. It's just, it's just amazing. Um, so I think that at the LP level, the, in, the limited partners that are investing capital into VC funds like ours, if you're not thinking about it or doing something about it or addressing it in any way, it's probably going to damage your business. You know, beyond your own personal belief system that says I want to make an impact. You know, you know, in my career. Well, explain what ESG is and impact investing and you know some some of those topics and how it's impacting our our industry, we've kind of touched on it already. Yeah, ESG is an acronym that's becoming de rigueur for um, asset allocation uh, managers, you know, people that are investing in, in funds and people that are investing in companies. And it's really, you know, I call it the triple bottom line, right? Mm -hmm. People, planet, profit. Um, you know, if you're a professional investor, you're supposed to be generating profits for your investors. Um, and, you know, that we're SEC regulated to a degree, and so there's a watchdog making sure that we're acting in the best interest of our investors. So you can't underestimate the importance of profit. But I think what you're starting to see in our world of venture capital more and more are people thinking about is what we're doing in terms of these investments, good for the environment, i.e. the planet, and good for society i.e. good for people, people plan and profit. So to me, that's the simple way to think about what's impact investing or ESG. 
ESG, there's um, some very specific guidelines that the UN has come up with, and you can Google this when you're bored, but there's, Patrick, is it 17 uh, specific um, components of the ESG guidelines from the UN? So a lot of people will ask you, do you adhere to the UN guidelines? And, it, and it's becoming increasingly important to say, yes, we've adopted 13 of the 17 or you know, have some conformance to the standard. Um, so that's a little bit more of a like a compliance angle, but I just think broadly you guys should all understand the concept of impact investing is you're trying to make an impact on society on the planet, um, you know, while hopefully generating profits for your investors. Yeah, I think um, there's some level of like a, a new Sharia compliance as well. It's kind of like we're not going to invest in drugs and you know, selling weapons or, you know, things that are destroying human lives and vices to some extent as well as well you're seeing. But um, I think that um, it's a good time to be a woman in venture capital, for sure. Um, the level of women that have been working in venture capital has not been zero, but the number of women at the investment committee at the IC has been quite low. You know, if you really look at it, I mean, part of it is that I think um, I had a woman um, on my podcast from Emergence Ventures, Cindy, the founder, and she was saying when she got her MBA, um, she just wasn't bonding with the males the same way the males were bonding with the males. I never really had an appreciation for it, but she was saying, when you guys would go off and play basketball, you weren't inviting me to go with that. And then, I, and then when you go out for drinks after basketball, I wasn't invited to go to that either. And so it was very hard for her to raise LP capital from that network. Founders place. And so I think that right now we're seeing um, a strong desire and then within VC white world or, you know, white guy world to get more diversity. I think you have always had these IITs that were the billionaires that sell their companies and start their VC funds, but there's enormous pressure to see women on boards and women at the IC level, the investment committee, decision-making level, not just a principal associate, you know, making their way up. And so there's a lot of emerging women supporting women networks. Um, so, like, I don't have access to Meg Whitman, but, you know, some women would have easier access to her. So there's a lot of things happening there. And you're seeing a lot of things happening, you know, you know, in different diversity levels. That's kind of a big topic. Why don't we switch gears to talk a little bit about fundraising, or, sorry, uh, job, job career development advice. So maybe just within Sway, when you're looking to hire somebody, what are some of the characteristics you're looking for at an entry level or a more senior level? Maybe let's talk about job advice for people heading in the VC track. And then we can talk about entrepreneur track and maybe the two go back and forth like you and I have. Mm -hmm. Sure. I think it, you know, if you're interested in venture capital, probably the most important thing you can do is start getting internships. They don't necessarily have to be in venture capital, but investment banks, you know, have huge internship programs where you can learn about transaction underwriting, understanding how deals work and putting, you know, um, companies in a position to be funded or acquired. Um, so I would say getting, you know, one or two or three internships under your belt, starting when you're in college, and, and perhaps carrying you know, through beyond college is probably the best way to prepare yourself for VC. 
most VCs have internship programs. And for, you know, you're coming out of school, you have a degree, you, you know, you can certainly apply, you know, the entry level is typically associate level in a venture capital firm. And so finding firms that are hiring, and you can figure this out on, you know, on the internet, it's not too difficult to see, okay, who's hiring for associates and applying for those roles. But the point is, if you've already had internships um, in relevant types of, of situations, that's going to get your resume, you know, carried to the top. I would also say networking is critical. Um, you've got two venture capitalists sitting in the front of this room, like getting to know people in the industry who know people who know people um, is also critical. So because if you can get a referral into a VC from somebody that is a VC, that's huge. And then if you've got an internship or two that is relevant, now you really start to make sense as a, as a compelling candidate. I would say on the entrepreneurial side, which I think is the second part of your question, I mean, really anybody can become a tech entrepreneur. I mean, literally any one of you tonight could build, you know, incorporate a company. If we're developing software, anybody can put a credit card, open up an Amazon, you know, web services account. You need engineers that can write code. But it's really interesting is that when you and I started building and founding companies, the bar was way higher to be a tech entrepreneur. Now, anybody, just about anybody can do it. The hard part, harder part is actually raising capital for startups. Um, so the key is maybe you've got a great idea for a startup. Maybe you've got a buddy who is an engineer in the engineering school, you know, Peter and Chapman, and you guys are going to be the co-founders of this cool tech startup. The question is, how are you going to raise money to capitalize this business so it has a fighting chance? And one of the things that has happened in the last 10 to 15 years that's really cool, when I started as an entrepreneur, the only way to get money was, was capitalists. And, and VCs, by their very nature, are very, very discerning uh, in terms of how they evaluate founders and opportunities. But there are these companies called accelerators that some of you may have heard of. The most famous ones would be Y Combinator, Techstars, 500 Startups. Their job is to bridge the gap between what we call friends and family financing and venture capital. So typically, if you know two of you start startup, you raise your first, let's say 100,000 bucks, you call your Uncle Larry and your Aunt Susie and your cousin Billy and beg your dad or your stepmother, hey, can I just get like five grand, 10 grand, and you string together 100 grand or 200 grand, 300 grand, maybe you got lucky and you know, one part of the lottery or something. But that very first financing is generally measured in, let's say hundreds of thousands of dollars, and that's called friends and family. That'll get you started, but it's not going to get you all the way to venture capital, typically. And so there are these groups in the middle uh, called accelerators, which you apply for the program. It doesn't cost you anything to participate. As a matter of fact, they pay you to be a part of it. You get um, typically equity capital that goes into the business where they're buying a small piece of ownership in your startup. And in exchange for that, in addition to the money, they actually teach you how to structure your business and your, your marketing materials so that you can have a good shot at raising venture capital money. 
And they're typically, they're called cohorts, but they're typically 120 day programs, not too much unlike this, but the courseware is basically how to be a founder and how to build a startup. At the end of that 120 day journey, it's something called a demo day where you're in a room, not too much like this. And instead of these two old guys talking, it's you talking and you're up there pitching your startup and you've got 10 minutes to get a room full of VCs excited about what you're doing. Um, and this has actually become probably the most common way that founders now are bridging the gap between friends and family and venture capital. So I would highly recommend if you are thinking about becoming an entrepreneur, learn about um, these accelerators and figure out how to apply for them because it, it doesn't cost money. You get paid to go through the programs. Yeah, accelerators have changed a lot. In fact, uh, David Cohen, who is a friend of mine, he's the, he and Brad Felt, he really pitched Techstars to Brad Felt and then Brad got so excited, he said, I wanna be known as a co-founder here. But uh, when they started, uh, three months, month one, we're gonna bring in a whole bunch of mentors as well as the other cohort founders with you. We're gonna evaluate your strategy. Maybe this is not a good, maybe you should go B2B instead of B2C or changing the strategy around. Month two, build product and try to get customers. Month three, we're gonna teach you about fundraising. And at the end of these three months is your graduating demo day, right? Things have changed a bit. I think that now so many people are applying they're thinking if I'm going to get 6% of X number of companies, they might as well be further along, you know? And so some of these accelerators are taking much further along companies. Another, cause some interesting dynamics in there too, are there's a bunch of people that are mentors too. So like guys like me or angel investors or some senior exec at Cisco and the M&A team are mentors. So it's part of all these people that the startups will interact with and they'll learn from. But a lot of them are saying, I want to invest in a few companies, the two best ones in the cohort. So I'm actually going to mentor all of you so I can throw my own 50K check or 250K check into two or three of you. And then when you get up on demo day, we'll have a one minute video of me saying, this is a great company. That's why I'm backing it. And I'm, I sold my company to Cisco for a billion dollars and I run enterprise at Cisco. And so these people know that if they invest in literally weak you know, week six, that they're going to get a better deal. It's like a crypto deal, which we're going to talk about later tonight. And then, and then six weeks later, the company's raising money at a higher cap on the convertible note, like we were talking about last week. And so the guy is up. He's up on paper every time he does this at these different accelerators. And then we'll go out and raise a fund saying, look, I'm up already. But what that really means for you is that you without knowing anybody, like I'm from Mexico, you know, I don't, how am I supposed to know all these people in Silicon Valley, right? And all of a sudden you're meeting all the mentors, you're meeting all these other people that are literally roaming the halls trying to get a bargain within a very short period of time. And maybe they're gonna sell some shares in the series A when it's way up. So you're, you're getting exposure to a whole bunch of prospective investors that are named people that add value, you know, as an investor, and then, of course, at like a Y Combinator demo today, it's in the Computer History Museum. They have as many people as they can fit in there. And in the virtual COVID world, there's now thousands of people dialing in. So you're getting a lot of exposure. Now, your Chinese copycats will happen within hours of you broadcasting what you're doing. But let them have China and you just take what, you know, whatever other part of the world you're, you're going after. 
Which is another thing I want to bring up that um, you might find this interesting, Brian, that like when advising founders on fundraising, we're telling our founders uh, or you're telling just, you know, people that I give advice to, when you're going to go do into a, go to a big VC fundraise, spend, if you can afford the time, two months just pitching other founders. And this is where being in an accelerator can be great. If you have, uh, if you can pitch literally three founders a day on 30 minute time slots, saying, I'm not asking you for money, I just want feedback so I can refine this pitch and get the narrative down and any ideas or any partnerships or anything you can think of. If you can get a ton of founders to do that for you and then say, and we're, here's our list of target VCs, after two months, you've really like, dress rehearsal's over, I'm ready for like stand-up Broadway. I'm ready to, my act is polished, I'm ready to go. And then you should be able to get a lot of intros from these other guys. There's a chance some of those guys are gonna fund you themselves. They're gonna be like, damn, this is hot. I want an advisory round and put a little check into you now and I'll introduce you to my VCs. Now that's great advice if you are super connected to a ton of founders that are VC back that can you know help you and do that. If you go through one of these accelerators, some of those guys are really gonna blow out. And so that could be your next startup. I mean, what do you do, have four or five startups? Imagine you did you know, a big YC on your first startup and you're now a YC alumnus, Y Combinator. You could implement it on a strategy like that you know, much, much more easily. So I may, maybe talk a, a drop about crowdfunding and then maybe we get into just touch on crypto. It's such a, go ahead. Uh, yeah. <laughs> At what point, or how do you know when there's too many advisors on these startups? Sometimes the advisors become founders, right? So, what point would it be concerning that maybe too much equity will be given? Does the startup have two to three, five, six, ten? Yeah, it, so what I've seen work is you know, when you have maybe two or three founders, if you have six, eight, ten founders, Somebody has to be in charge. You can't really run a startup like a democracy. In the early days when you're building a product, fine, but eventually somebody has to be the face of the company. All this fundraising we're talking about, it's not a group of people, it's one person. And that person's job title is typically ends up being CEO, founder and CEO. So I think it's easier to down-select into that if you have you know, two or three founders. Advisors, how many you should have is a function of a few different variables. Um, but, the, you know, you can't really conflate advisor with founder. Founder is somebody that's spending all of their time, right, killing themselves, working you know, 80, 100 hours a week to go build this thing for a very sustained period of time. An advisor is somebody that you call in on occasion to say, hey, Andrew really knows this space pretty well. I think we're going to be able to come to him once a week, once a month, go have a latte and hit him between the eyes with some key questions that we're struggling with. And for that, we'll give him a modest amount of equity in the form of stock options. That's an advisor. Does that answer your question? Yeah. And can I just say something on that? So there, there's uh, building an advisory board at the beginning, maybe before you go for fundraising, is like a very early step in the company. And, and maybe giving a certain amount of the company to that one or set of people and then there is building up your cap table so cap table meaning who owns shares in this company and i wrote about um i did a case study with rick marini now a vc founded tickle.com sold it for 100 million to monster.com and so he was a bit of a darling of silicon valley 
And so in his next round, he, he had like Excel and Sequoia or something as his series A, just like on PowerPoint. And so he had no key, so he didn't struggle to get VC funding without going through friends and family and angels. And what he did was, I thought, quite innovative at the time. This was maybe 2011 during my Founders Club days. He, right before closing a five and a half million dollar round with Excel, and I don't think it was Square, but it was some big name. And he said, let me just add, let me carve out 500K for 50 angels or 25 angels that want to be in this deal. And so he then went out and raised an angel round saying, how would you like to co-invest? Same terms, maybe not major investor rights, but same economics. And so he wasn't giving shares away to advisors. He was building like the world's biggest badass advisory board. Like Tony Conrad from True Ventures did a very similar thing when he founded about.me. And so he had super people with like 30,000 followers on LinkedIn all putting in a 25K, 50K check. Like you're not allowed to go more than a certain amount to have this foundation, like an advisory round, you know, almost. What's unusual about Rick Marini's story is that he did it after having secured the VCs. The old like 1990s view of this would be like, oh dude, I had to tidy up and clean up this cap table. There's no way I'm dealing with getting 500 signatures to sell the company. Well, that's just put it in the legal box. You have, you have nothing to say. I can sell the company without your opinion. Maybe I need Sway Ventures to weigh in on major decisions. You have a question? Um, I was just going to ask about, do you believe that there's like a sweet spot when it comes to the dilution of founder stock? Like after people start investing and maybe the company's getting ready to file an IPO, um, like what is like a good percentage for the founders to hold on to after the company is growing, you're getting outside investors? Mm -hmm. A way to think about it is, you know, it depends on when you're fundraising because you'll typically do multiple rounds, right? The first price round is typically called the C round, the A round, the B round, the C round. You don't know how many rounds you're going to have before your exit if you're lucky enough to have an exit. Um, and I emphasize the word luck because there are things that are out of your control that will, you know, to some degree determine whether or not you get the proverbial exit, which could be trade sale or IPO or sale to a financial sponsor. But I think a good way to think about it is, you know, for each round of financing uh, that you're doing, at least in the earlier round, seed A, B, you're probably giving up about 20% of the business each time. So, so in your seed round, maybe the founders and the employees still have 80%. Get to the A round at sixty percent. You get to the B round, maybe it's forty percent. That's that's pretty standard. And then you know by the end of the journey, you know I'm we're pricing and leading a Series D right now, and the post money valuation, the founders are going to end up at that point with about twenty percent. But there, we believe that within two to three years, this particular company can go public for several billion dollars. So 20% of several billion is meaningful money. So dilution is a natural part of the process. Um, and, and the more value that you can command in these negotiation processes, um, the less dilution that you'll take because you can raise more money at a higher valuation. So it might be, uh, you don't typically see Founders 
giving up less than 10% on a given financing round, but I'd say it's in that 10 to 20% range is typically what you're gonna see. In the ancient times of the 90s, it was 33%. That was, you, you know, or, or you, started, you started, this is gonna hurt by 33%, and it can even get worse or better. That, that was the old times. I think that the market has become much more founder friendly now than it used to be. And 20% is definitely a standard now on the early ones. And I think in those bigger ones where they don't really need the money or there's just so much competition, they're saying we're going to be worth twice as much within a year. We don't need the cash so much. This is such a bigger round than the last one as far as the size of the check we're getting. Let's not sell more than 10%. Does that sound about right? What what I'm seeing in a deal like that was that was that the one that was like a hundred on nine a hundred million on nine hundred the one that you had been in, the, yeah, in that neighborhood yeah. in that neighborhood. What, what I'm typically witnessing like right now and the market could change depending on what happens with Vladimir Putin and all this stuff. But um, is that a deal like the one we're not going to talk about openly? But you told me about the other day. In really early now, if you're in like everything just looks great. If it were sold for half this price, you would have done great, right? But if they're raising a hundred on a pre of nine hundred, the round will close, and there'll be a whole bunch of big pools of capital that wanted to be in that round that didn't get into the round because they only sold a hundred and they didn't want to value it at more than a billion now because it would have been a mistake. It would have limited options. You know, which direction that company can go or how you could ever get out. Um, the result will be someone's going to sell some shares. Someone's going to sell some shares on that cap table, whether it's a founder, advisor, early investor, um, and then you start seeing secondary activity happen and a bunch of people getting cash in their pocket that's not going into the company for growth, but it's <clears throat> going into someone's pocket and they're selling chips, essentially. Mm -hmm. Why don't we stay on a few more questions, then we can wrap up. So, so typical VC funds have LPAs or limited limited partnership agreements or operating agreements that are kind of like the constitution of what they can do or what they can't do. And typically they're saying, hey, you said you're raising money from us limited partner investors to buy stock in these companies and then sell the stock at a much higher price. That's what's supposed to be happening. They're supposed to be privately held companies, but typically 20% up to 20%, you could invest it in like a seed or you could do other things with it. And which makes crypto a possibility or getting into you know, digital assets and tokens and this kind of thing. What are, what are you guys thinking around deals that are happening in the blockchain, you know, from ICOs to IEOs to private sales to these things going public essentially before presenting product or revenue? Yeah, I mean, blockchain itself is good for a lot more than cryptocurrencies. Um, it turns out blockchain can be used in thousands of different types of software applications, and it's it's a really becoming a really vital technology. So I would say we're investing in companies left, right, and center that are leveraging blockchain as part of their solution. Cryptocurrencies are a bit different for us because the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC that regulates our industry, they basically view cryptocurrencies as a form of a security and you're limited 
um, by you know regulation what percentage of a venture fund you can put in any type of a non-direct venture investment. So if you do, if you invest in another fund, that goes against your 20%. If you invest in a secondary, as you talked about, buy shares in a company from another shareholder, uh, that goes against your 20% and cryptocurrencies go against the 20%. So you, you don't really have a lot of maneuvering room to go out and say, hey, we're gonna get involved in a bunch of like buying into cryptocurrencies. Some venture capitalists like Sequoia and Andreessen Horowitz are re-registering as uh, registered investment advisors, which allows you to invest in those things, but with a whole lot more regulatory overhead and cost yeah. uh, and drag on the organization. And clearly, you know, these are very smart organizations. So they're- but they have huge amounts of capital. They, they can pay for that compliance. But a smaller, you know, emerging fund manager, that's going to be a much larger burden. Yeah. I mean, I think at some point, everything's going to be crypto in a way. Like every single security is going to be digitized and it's not going to pretend to not be a security. And it's going to be programmatically complying. Yeah, with, I think with security, with, with, with regulatory, whatever the current regulatory statutes are, it'll comply through software. I think the way our startups that we back and our founders look at, you know, these digital currencies is, hey, this could be a form of payment that I can now take for whatever it is that I'm <laughs> And so we are seeing a lot of cryptocurrency, you know, hooks going into uh, these companies. And that's a, um, you know, so it just becomes one more way you can get paid from your customers. Look at what Elon Musk has done with Tesla, right? Like you can go to a charging station now and use Dogecoin, right? Um, he did that also for marketing reasons, but the point is people are starting to take cryptocurrencies for things that, you know, previously, you know, that would not work. So I think we do look at cryptocurrency as another means to exchange value for you know, the software and tech products that we're investing in. I think one of the, we'll get into it a little bit more later tonight, but I think one of the kind of changing the entrepreneurship game a bit with what's been happening with some blockchain or crypto-based companies is that they develop their own token that, you know, they're printing it like Vladimir Putin's printing a ruble. Like they just put it, they just make it right. And then they can say there's a limited number or whatever. And they can say, if you do something I want you to do, and you're a free man, you don't have to do it, you'll get these tokens. And so all of a sudden, you know, so I might say, hey, our website sucks. If somebody makes us a website that's like we're happy with, we'll pay you in our mintable currency. And oh, if you're if you're my customer and I would prefer you do this than that, I'll reward you with an incentivized, you know, this token. And so people are, it's a different way of building it because without this, you're left getting diluted by Sway Ventures and getting cash to pay people in fiat USD euros, right? So, so that's what I thought you were going at when you were saying, uh, you know, it's a different currency for incentives or how you pay for, for stuff. That's a bit of a, it's a bit of a different model than your classic, you know, equity model. Or a DAO, where no one even owns the equity or wants to own the equity. Mm -hmm. But I think I think the regulatory compliance thing is problematic. If you're a well-established VC, you're probably not going to dip your toe into full-blown crypto unless you are 
ready to go the distance with like Andrews and Horowitz, you know, on that for now. Um, Brian, a question, it occurred to me that I should have asked you years ago, why Sway? What does it mean? Sway, Sway Ventures, where did uh, you and Patrick come up with this name? Well, I think Patrick gets the credit for coming up with the name, everybody loved it. But I think the concept was we were, pretty much all my partners at Sway were um, entrepreneurs. We were all tech entrepreneurs, people in VCs. And we had all raised money from, you know, top 20 venture capital funds, you know, very well-known brand name firms. The good news about that is we raised capital, we developed friendships that lasted to this day. And you know, we're investing with people that we've in many cases known for 15, 20, 25 years. So I've got all the time in the world to work with my tier one venture capital firms. But one of the things I was struck by with um, the model is that there was not a huge amount of energy spent by those firms to try to help me solve you know, problems or help me rise to the occasion of new opportunities in terms of you know, parachuting talent into my business to say, hey, Brian, we're going to help you charge this hill. Um, it was very episodic and arm's length support. And I, we just felt like there's a huge opportunity there to change that dynamic. So that, you know, when founders get asked, hey, are your investors doing anything to help you build the business outside of wiring you money and showing up to quarterly board meetings, we wanted the answer to be, wow, you bet. You can't imagine the amount of value that these guys have created and that you can measure it, right? It's not just conjecture or um, conversation. It's like, no, here's exactly what they did and exactly what it did to improve the trajectory of our business. And so I think the etymology was like, hey, you can sway minds, you can sway outcomes, right? You can sway, okay. you know, the, the, you know, what happens with this, this startup. And so that, that just became our ethos and, you know, part of our reason for being, you know, you, you also have to keep in mind what value are you creating for your investors, your limited partner investors, but they like the fact that we're investing disproportionately compared to our peers in a dedicated full-time fighting force that we can parachute, you know, those, those people into companies to truly make a difference in what's happening. So that's, I would say, part of the ethos of the brand. And Brian, maybe closing questions. And if there's any questions in the audience, please, you know, speak up. Um, geography, sector, stage, where you're at now, I'm sure you guys will evolve into something different over time, but uh, when is it suitable for a founder to approach you guys for funding? Sure. Um, the technical term is stage agnostic, which I don't like the term because it makes it sound like you believe in you know, nothing or maybe everything, but that means that we can invest at the seed stage. So that's after the friends and family and the, and the uh, accelerator seed stage is typically the first institutional price round and then we do what's called core venture capital series a and b and then we do growth capital you know basically between the b round and the ipo so we have um the ability to go cross uh stage as far as um sectors we sort of think of the world at least the thesis for for sway ventures is about industry transformation 
And so we're keyed in on five you know, major industries, real estate, financial services, healthcare, supply chain, and what we call retail and brands, which is the future of uh, e-commerce. So if you think about the metaverse, you're starting to see really interesting things happening on the metaverse. H&M is a brand I'm sure most of you know. They launched a 100% digital storefront in the metaverse. You can put on a VR headset, you can go into the store, you can try on clothes onto an avatar, you can get help from assistant, an assistant, you know, to pick out, can you help me find another, you know, pair of jeans that I might like? And then you can go to a digital checkout and use digital currency <laughs> to check out. I mean, that's so the commerce is changing right before our eyes. So those are the five industries that we focus on, and we're looking for you know transformative. Uh, technologies that are helping those large, massive industries catapult further into you know what innovation can provide. Geographically speaking, although it could be said that we were founded in in, our, in and around Silicon Valley, and most of us grew up there, you know, literally, and also in terms of our tech careers, we're doing deals across the United States, and for us. We do international deals uh, in EMEA, Europe, Middle East, and Africa. We call it transatlantic arbitrage, but we're doing a combination of investments in North America uh, and across the pond to Europe and uh, more broadly into the Middle East. So that's the footprint. And we have a small team in a Stockholm office uh, that manages Europe for us. And then we've got a few different outposts scattered across both coasts of the U.S., but there's we don't really have a bias. We look for great founders building disruptive technologies that are transforming one of those industries that I mentioned. And if we can invest anywhere between seed and growth to partner with those founders, and we think we can bring this proportion of value out, that's the deal we're going to take a hard look at. I love it. And when you're when you're parachuting in these kind of resources that you didn't feel like you were getting as a VC back founder, do you have ownership target percentages? I mean, if you're coming in late, maybe less, but how do you think about ownership target percentages? Like what percentage of the company does Sway want to own? You're right that it is stage dependent. You're not going to be able to, you know, unless you're Tiger Global. Um, you're probably not going to be able to buy the same ownership percentage at the growth round. But even if you are, you know, a massive multi-billion dollar fund, you're just still typically not going to buy as much ownership. So I think what we see in the industry is that Sway, and it's not unique to us, our peers, if you can get something close to 20% ownership in that early round, the seed stage, the A, that's probably a benchmark that most you know, able-bodied VCs are shooting for, assuming that you've got uh, sufficient enough investment capital. When you get to the, the later stages, I think that drops to five to 10%. It's kind of the band that most growth stage investors are in as new capital entrance in the, into the company. And I think we're, you know, right in that, that same band. That's awesome. And um, is Sway gonna be hiring anybody? Junior level anytime soon, or what does that look like? I think uh, applications for our internship program, um, we start opening up the uh, application process in the next 10 days. Oh my so God, all right, so. You can go to our website and look for the internship program and submit a resume. So I'll definitely put that on Canvas so everybody has access to that before the rest of the school.
Uh, would you say, um, like, like the Y Combinator, is that the most common way that you guys find companies that you invest in, or is it through, like, personal relationships or through other VCs? Yeah, good question. You know, we, we don't spend a ton of time at, um, you know, going to demo days at Y Combinator. It's a fantastic organization. We've backed companies that have come through there. But if I'm looking at a deal that, as Andrew said, 500 other VCs are looking at, I don't feel like that's a proprietary deal, right? <laughs> you know, a proprietary deal, why that's, let's say you want to buy a house. You say, wow, the house on the corner, I really want to put an offer into it. Would you like to be bidding against 20 other buyers or be in, a, in the kitchen with the owner of the house talking about how, you know, you'd like to consummate it? It's the same concept in venture capital. So the, the deals that we tend to do, we're not really competing against anybody. We've kind of figured out how to buy the house without anybody else either knowing about it or having a viable shot at getting it. That's easier said than done, but it's a discipline that we have. So to your point, uh, founder relationships that the partnership have, uh, sometimes we get referrals from our venture capital friends. Maybe they invested in a prior round and they say, hey, Brian, this, this company looks like it would fit your thesis. We also get deals from our corporate partners. So you've heard us talk about Cisco. We have a relationship with Cisco and Cisco's investment team has brought us great deals over the years um, and uh, universities. We have relationships with universities where um, maybe there's a artificial intelligence lab or a machine learning, you know, curriculum and you've got, you know, postdocs or graduate students or, or undergraduate students that are coming out of university that have been working on some interesting technology product, and they say, wow, we think we can actually commercialize this. And so that's one of the reasons we have a relationship with Professor Romans, and we've got other relationships at other universities. So those are a few of the ways that we you know, manufacture those, those introductions. I would say that uh, Y Combinator wouldn't love hearing me say this, but we do invest in YC companies, so we deserve to be at every demo day. But part of my motivation to go to the in-person demo day pre-COVID is I know Patrick's probably going to be there and another hundred friends of mine, you know, in the industry are going to be there. And so if I listen to, and for me, I'd rather listen to these back-to-back -back pitches than watch TV really. So I enjoy the rapid fire as opposed to how do you like your coffee on every single one. So it's efficient. Might make one investment there, maybe three, maybe none but I'm guaranteed to bump, bump into a bunch of friends. And then out of sight, out of mind is bad. And now that we're back together, maybe, you know, I moved to somewhere else and we catch up and we're having a drink. It's like, hey, do you have anything kit in mind? We're doing growth investments now. We've moved past just day. And I'm like, well, I've got a whole portfolio that's growing into that. And then all of a sudden at the YC demo day, we're talking about all this other stuff. A lot of the YC companies are even saying like, Hey, before I go any further with you, are you just here to socialize with all your buddies? You know, but, but the other thing is Brian said, we've known a lot of these founders going back decades. And so there's a relationship and comfort of, we know that person is a domain expert, subject matter expert. That's the person to back for the Marine shipping industry or something that you, you meet a bunch of people at a, when they're at the demo day stage 
And if they come into contact with you again, you're like, oh, I remember your last startup before you founded Spotify. You yeah, know, the networking effect, it's a good point. <laughs> I would say I missed one uh, in response to your question, which is founders. So we might back a founder and we've been working with her for a year and maybe she really likes the support that we're providing. And then she calls us one day and says, you know, I have a friend. She launched a company and it's in a space that you guys are investing in. And I think it's at a stage you guys would like. Here's her, you know, presentation that summarizes what she's doing. Would you guys like to meet her? And if the answer is yes, that actually is a good fit for us. Now you're getting a really strong referral, right? Where she says, hey, I'll vouch for these guys. You really should talk to this you know, venture capital firm. It's another very powerful way to find deals. What percent of companies that pitch you do you actually end up investing in, if you had to guess? Yeah, it's so what I would tell you is that historically we've you know touched about 2,000 companies per year. Can't say that that's 2,000 pitched. Some of them we see it back, maybe we have a quick call. Um, but you know, we, we probably touched 2,000 companies a year. And our, our investment aperture is increasing, but historically we've probably done about 10 deals a year. So it's a pretty high bar. Um, but we're now, you know, on offense with um, a multitude of new investment funds. And so 10 will probably turn into about 50 or 60 deals per year. Um, but we'll also probably be looking at more deals. Um, but, you know, the NEVC has a pretty high bar to get in, which is why if you're out, if you're a founder and you're out fundraising, you got to go talk to 10, 20, 30, 40 of these groups to have, typically to have a shot at raising, you know, capital. So it's a numbers game for us and it's a numbers game for the founders that you gotta just keep turning over rocks until you find somebody that says, we, we can't leave the room without getting into this company, right? Um, with the ESG in mind, what industries are you most likely to invest in? Well, it turns out ESG is hitting all five of our industry sectors that I mentioned earlier. And I'll give you a, an example or two. In the real estate world, we, we VCs call real estate um, technology prop tech, prop short for property. And we backed a company um, called Measurable a few years back that they're an ESG data management company. So what, what they do is they take a building like this and they measure the relative energy efficiency of this building. And then they benchmark that against the peer buildings around the state, around the country, around the world, so that you get a sense of, okay, this, this, this building's in the 90th percentile, it's pretty darn energy efficient, or it's in the 10th percentile, it's pretty horrible, it's consuming a lot of energy. Um, commercial real estate is one of the biggest uh, contributors to greenhouse gas emissions, because it's like 50% or something. It's a huge yeah. number. New York City's greenhouse gas emissions, 70% of them are coming from just the commercial or office real estate uh, in, in Manhattan. So it's a big issue for the environment, but it also uh, is a big issue for the performance of, an, of a real estate asset because energy is your highest variable cost. So if your energy costs are relatively high, that's gonna uh, prevent you from maximizing your cash flow on a building. 
if you're applying for a loan because you want to refinance this building, lenders will give you a better lending rate if you can prove that the building is green and it is energy efficient. So it turns out the measurement and optimization of energy efficiency in buildings really important just from a business standpoint. But it turns out many state governments and many national governments around the world are instituting regulations that if you can't prove that your building's energy efficient, you're going to get you're going to get taxed on it. You're going to pay penalties and fines, and it becomes, you know, a revenue collection, you know, for various and sundry governments. Um, but it's just going to decrease the investment performance of the building. So that's an example of an ESG investment that we've made in the real estate or prop tech arena. So you can pretty much look across. Um, the different industries that we invest in and find ESG plays. Thank you. Yep. Are there any common themes among those 10 out of 2000 that really make them stand out and kind of differentiate them from the rest? It's a good question. I, I'll answer it two ways. Um, part of how you really should try to pick deals, I think, and not, not all VCs think alike, is to be thematic. So when I talked about we have know, um, healthcare, real estate, financial services, thematically I'm painting a picture of the industries we want to go after. And within, you know, prop tech, we had a very specific view that, hey, this ability to measure and manage, you know, energy efficiency is going to be a big deal. That led us so that when we found this company uh, called Measurable, we knew it was thematically it was a fit. So part of it is being proactive and making sure you're on offense to find deals that are thematically a fit. But then there's other things that you look at where, you know, hindsight's 2020. And so we, we take a composite of, let's say, the 10 or 20 best deals we've ever done in our history. We say, what are the common threads in these companies? And it turns out uh, you can distill clarity around that. Um, and it's probably a bit different for each firm, but for our firm, you know, take the founders. There are certain attributes about founders um, that we find to be very compelling where we've had continued success. Um, founders that demonstrate a proficiency for raising capital efficiently, institutional capital, meaning from VCs <laughs> like us, turns out that's really important. Because if your founder builds great technology, great team, but is having trouble raising money, that can be a hindrance to you know, a strong you know, trajectory. So you're, you're kind of trying to analyze the strength of the founding team. But you know, a lot of VCs will tell you, well, the addressable market of their product has to be, quote unquote, massive, right? If the total addressable market's this big, probably hard to create a venture return. If it's this big, you know, you can probably create a venture, you know, like return. So you can look at the market dynamics, the founder dynamics, the product or technology dynamics. Maybe there's attributes. Most of what VCs do these days is software or software enabled businesses. So are there attributes about the software architecture or product itself um, that, you know, your firm finds to be repeatedly successful. So does that give you a sense of it? Definitely. Yes, let me take one last question. We, we promised this guy take this whole night and then I want to get a picture and we've got a little something for you. So last question. 
I was just going to ask like, on the other side of the spectrum, like the USFDC, like what? I mean, I don't know how it works really, but has it ever there ever been a moment when a startup, you know, like has several VCs that want to invest in it? Like, how do you get like, you to send out to them, or like, what about Sway is like attractive to startups to like trust you with like their baby, you know? Yeah, how do you basically how do you win deals as yeah, a VC? Well, part of it's what I said earlier, and again, every VC has their own approach. If you're, you know, Sequoia, which is a fantastic firm, um, you know, they've been around for 50, 60 years, they've established brand equity, and they can win deals just on the power of what their brand means to people. And hey, if you can, it's like Apple, like, you know, Apple comes out with a product, it's like, okay, it's probably not going to suck, I can trust the brand to some degree. but. I would say, you know, there's probably maybe 20, 25 venture firms on the planet that have earned that right, where their brand is just that strong. For the rest of us, you have to compete on something tangible for founders. And I think you probably pick up on this theme tonight that because we are, I call myself a recovering founder, right? I used to be a founder and I became someone that backed founders. So we really tried to instill resources, programs, and focus where we can help founders truly move the needle on impacting their business to the good, where we can hopefully change the slope of the trajectory that they're on. And I can say that, but so could another VC. So the proof in the pudding is, let's say you're that founder we're talking to and we really like your deal. We'll give you, you know, the contact information for 25 of our founders and say randomly call five of them and ask them, you know, how did Sway Ventures impact your, or did they impact it? Did you notice anything different about what they did for you versus other VCs? What specifically did they do to help you? And I sleep well at night because I know I don't, I don't care which five you call. They're probably all going to give you a very specific, you know, business case about you know, how our firm is working, you know, for your, you know, benefit, the benefit of the founders. So that's, that's one way to compete and it's worked really well for us. Okay, guys, let's call this a wrap. Brian, thank you so much for coming over here and spending time with us.